As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, you know, we've been talking a lot about um, crypto, cryptocurrencies <laughs> on the show lately. Yes. Um, but in kind of like a sort of like very limited abstract sense. And I think actually people are getting excited about different things that could be done with coins and tokenization, et cetera in a lot more ways than just sort of like the redefining money or redefining finance concept. Yeah, I'm definitely starting to see quite a lot of um, more creative use cases. So there was a Barclays note the other day that basically talked about using tokenization to fix the repo market and try to make the settlement times more efficient. Uh, So that's fun. But we've seen lots of different potential applications for tokens, including maybe tokenizing future income streams from individuals. Yeah, tokenizing uh, athletes. And this is also like, you've always been obsessed with this topic. And we actually like talked about it recently with music rights. And I think years Mm. ago, we talked about Bowie bonds. Like this is all like the idea of like owning like the stream to a person's income or being able to like invest in a person or a star has always been something kind of appeals to you, right? Uh, Appeals to me, I think intellectually, yes. I think there are a lot of open questions about how exactly it works and whether or not it's good for society. But I think it's sort of anyone who's into or interested in securitization is at some point going to start thinking about whether or not you can apply the process to people and individual streams of income. I think Matt Levine once described this, uh, our Bloomberg columnist colleague once described this as like the classic sort of college, like late night dorm um, intellectual exercise model. Yeah. Well, no, like, you know, the kind of thing you talk about maybe after you've had a few drinks or something else, can you (laughs) actually sell stock in people and how would you do it? Tracy, this is me. This is so much more than dorm room talk now. This is, this is, uh, (laughs) this is becoming big up. One other thing, you know, we're talking about like the idea of like betting on a person or buying uh, sort of a stake in someone that you're really into. But uh, I don't. Did you pay attention to the whole like NBA Top Shot phenomenon a few months ago? No, and this is going to be an episode that comes with my standard sporting caveat, which is I have no idea what's going on in the NBA. I am not an expert in the space by any stretch of the imagination. So go ahead and tell me what happened. Well, you know, your excuse is also that you're in Hong Kong, but a few Thank months you. ago there was this huge obsession with these like digital sort of like blockchain-based basketball cards and people were paying like tens of thousands of dollars for essentially like a a playing card, like a a, a star dunking or something like that. It was like a video, kind of looked like a GIF, but uh, collectible, one-of-a-kind kind of of things. It was this huge thing. It's it's kind of faded a little bit uh, in the public's imagination, but as a proof of concept, people are just like really excited about the idea of like using tokenization, digital collectibles, all kinds of new ways for fans to express their support. Right. Well, if you think about, you know, we've spoken a little bit about NFTs on the show. You think about NFTs, there's a sort of natural application to sports collectibles, which have always been, I mean, sporting fans have always been sort of interested in collecting things surrounding sports, right? 
baseball cards kind exactly of readily right. spring to mind. Yeah, exactly right. Well, I am very excited about our guest because we have an NBA star on the podcast <laughs> today. He is the co-founder of the app Galaxy. He is a star player for the Brooklyn Nets. We are going to be speaking with Spencer Dinwiddie as well as Solo Cisse, also the co-founder. And they are, you know, working on projects related to all this blockchain, interacting uh, with uh, stars, tokenization, new ways for fans to interact with the game. So I'm very excited about speaking with to both uh, Spencer and Solo. So thank you both for coming on. Um, thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. Um, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, thank you. So, um, Spencer, I mean, actually, Spencer, I'm sort of like uh, familiar. You've always been into like crypto stuff or I know like a lot of athletes are getting into it a long time ago. But I feel like you've actually been way ahead of the curve on this stuff, like thinking about blockchain and cryptocurrencies. What got you interested in this world? Yeah, no, I mean, I was I was fortunate enough to get into Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in uh, early 2017. You know, a buddy of mine in the finance industry, uh, you know, told me about it in 2014. And um, unfortunately, I didn't get in. Uh, Should have listened then. Yeah, no, I, I wish I had. You know, I <laughs> you know, might be retired right now, honestly. Uh, but but no, I mean, I was fortunate enough to get in 2017. Um, I experienced both the rise and the crash. Um, it, it sparked kind of an education process and I wanted to learn about it. And as my my pursuit of knowledge started to open up a new world. Um, I started just trying to apply it to, you know, what what's familiar in my life, which is the entertainment industry. And, um, you know, fast forward four years and, and Galaxy is in beta and, you know, uh, Solo is, is, is primed and poised to, to lead us to heights that, you know, no, no consumer product has really seen yet in the blockchain space. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe this is a good time for you to introduce yourself. Uh, what's the relationship here and, and how did you get involved in the project? Yeah, sure. Most definitely. So my name is Solo Cisse, co-founder here at Galaxy. Um, yeah, so Spencer. Spencer uh, is a, a very interesting guy. So he's actually one of, uh, you know, a close friendly friend of mine. As you guys all know, he uh, was one of the first people, if not the first, actually to tokenize himself. Um, and so he's actually, a, you know, a good family friend of mine. Uh, my brother actually put us in contact a, a number of years ago at this point, um, you know, mentioning that, you know, whatever it is that Spencer aspired to do with his contract and tokenizing himself, um, you know, and all of those conversations uh, didn't really make much sense, but um, it made equally no sense to whatever it is that I did for work. Uh, so I was a securitization investment banker um, previously. Um, and so we started having those conversations about what the future of um, fan engagement looks like, but also the idea of monetization and democratizing, you know, oneself um, in order to, you know, uh, you know, profit off of, uh, you know, your your likeness in a way that you couldn't, you know, previously. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, the impetus of what Galaxy, the modern project is. Um, you know, we're really excited to, you know, take a take a stab at changing, uh, you know, the creator economy and changing, uh, you know, using crypto um, as a means to get there. Spencer, why don't you, or either one of you really, but why don't you sort of describe the basic uh, Galaxy? What is it? What is the model? I'll let Solo take this one. Yeah, sure. So Galaxy stands for the Creator's Galaxy, and essentially um, we are a one-stop shop for a creator to monetize themselves. So if you think about the creator economy currently, there is a number of different social media platforms that exist out there. And, you know, the power of influence and the growing of the creator middle class you know, nowadays you can walk on the street, um, you know, of New York and walk by somebody that has, you know, 200,000 followers that's looking to monetize and connect those, those fans. And so, you know, those guys are often found. I am. <laughs> exactly. Right. Those guys are often found on a number of different platforms looking to monetize and have those authentic experiences that their fans are quite honestly looking for. So what we've decided to do is create a platform where all of that can be hosted in one space, giving these people the autonomy to really, you know, dive into monetizing their fan base in a way that makes sense for them. Um, you know, so a you know celebrity chef might monetize their fan base differently than a star running back, might differently, you know, monetize their selves than a reality TV star. And so Galaxy is meant to host all of that um, all of one place. And then we obviously have the crypto and, you know, blockchain architecture to be able to benefit, um, you know, from things like NFTs and really helping, you know, introduce that to, um, you know, the masses in a palatable way. 
Sorry, can you talk a little bit more about the differences in how different celebrities would actually monetize their income stream? So how would a, a chef do it that's different to, you know, what a basketball player would do or a reality TV star? Yeah, most certainly. So like to, to, to dive into it, essentially the way the app works is that each creator has their own cryptocurrency. And so we're creating personalized cryptocurrencies with instant utility. And what we mean by that is um, in order to buy, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie's token, um, you know, you would buy that and you would be able to redeem it for an interaction with Spencer. So be it a video call, FaceTime call, you know, directly within an app. Um, you know, whether it's ex- access to exclusive content, you name it, you know, you're able to essentially use that as a form of currency to redeem those, um, you know, interactions. So it's really monetizing someone's time versus kind of their income streams, right? Like this is distinctly different than, you know, securitizing your own, you know, MBA contract, for example. Um, you know, that's something that speaks to, you know, the masses of, in- you know, influencers, right? Like not everybody is signed to the Brooklyn Nets for a lucrative deal. We all wish we were, but we're not. But you know, somebody like a celebrity <laughs> chef might want to offer cooking classes. They might want to offer, you know, you know, different, you know, products that make sense for their communities. And so in our platform, you're able to turn on and off different things that make sense for your fan bases. Um, and then obviously you're also able to set your pricing, which makes sense. So um, you know, if you know you're set your price at one, you know, at one point and you know, a more, you know, competitive influencer that's you know, very similar to you and, you know, in a perfect market, you know, you might lose your fans to go there, et cetera. But, um, you know, we're all about community building and all of those things. So, um, you know, quite honestly, it's usually not a zero sum game, but that's how the app works and how the ecosystem functions. Uh, Spencer, you know, you've been in the league uh, since 2014, so uh, seven years and from a sort of technology social media, and obviously anything related to cryptocurrency, that is a lifetime, just seven years. Can you talk a little bit just about like how the fan player relationship has been changed by technology over that time? Oh, man. It's funny. I mean, I I feel like basketball, the entertainment industry, uh, technology, it's kind of like dog years. You know, everything's just so accelerated. I mean, to, to give you a basketball analogy, I mean, when I got in the NBA, a lot of teams still had two big men. You know what I mean? Like it was right, right before the uh, kind of Golden State transition to, you know, shooting threes. And there were still big question marks on if you could win the game shooting threes. I mean, now we're talking about, you know, NBA top shot and, and there being, you know, uh, virtue VR uh, components, you know, to, to the NBA and its viewing experience. I mean, obviously you've seen through social media uh, where platforms like uh, Instagram have become, uh, content distribution um, on a wide scale, not just for uh, individuals and creators, but but also for, you know, these these brands as well. You know, the NBA does a great job of sending out Instagram uh, posts and, and, and videos and things like that, uh, promoting games. I mean, we, we play the Milwaukee Bucks tonight, and I'm sure if you go to the NBA's timeline right now, there's going to be Giannis highlights and KD highlights, and obviously uh, capitalizing on YouTube and, and, and having highlights uh, distributed there uh, more freely than some of the other leagues. I think that's something that you know, NFL kind of missed the boat on um, at the start. And then, you know, also having a shoot the Twitter live show that I participated in uh, with Taylor Rooks and Channing Fry and, and Isaiah Thomas and, and stuff like that, where you're, where you're getting some of that live streaming and commentating from, uh, you know, not, not just the, the, the telecast crew, but also some more uh, maybe familiar personalities and maybe uh, arms length personalities. Uh, you know, like I said, like a Channing Fry, all, all these things that I've, I've referenced are, just part of that dramatic shift. And I think, you know, as these uh, social medias and as uh, these technologies come that, that decrease the barrier between fan and, and, and player or fan and product necessarily, I guess. And I know it sounds terrible to call us products, but, you know, the, the, the content that we produce, the, the, the basketball game we play is, is like weaving a, a one of a kind of, you know, art piece every night. And, and that's what the fans want to be attached to and a part of. You know, it's all about kind of de- decreasing the friction for for the fan to be able to interact and consume uh, the content that they love. Well, this is something that I want to ask you about, actually. So Joe and I just launched a uh, subscriber only platform at Bloomberg, and I've been sort of struggling to come up with stuff to write for it. So do you find it difficult or do you feel pressure to produce content suitable for Instagram or suitable for, you know, selling for extra money to fans? in addition to being an athlete, because it's, I mean, everyone takes it for granted now, but it is kind of a big shift over the past five years or so. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, to Solo's point, uh, when he kind of referenced each uh, creator, each demographic, each subsection of this entertainment industry has their ways to monetize. You know, a TikTok star is going to do it completely different than a YouTuber. It's going to do it different than a gamer. It's going to do it different than a basketball player. Um, remember, like all the content that I produce still has to abide by a certain, I would say, unwritten code that the NBA kind of represents. Right. Because you never sacrifice your main check to like go grab small endorsements. Right. Like right. Th- this this summer, I should sign, you know, a contract that's north of, let's call it 60 million dollars. Right. If I could pick up another one to two million dollars in endorsements or whatever it is a year, it still wouldn't just it would take me 30 years you know, to, to satisfy my, you know, abbreviated NBA contract. So it wouldn't make sense. It'd be nonsensical for me to start posting elaborate or disingenuous or, you know, explicit content or just anything that would violate that NBA code. And so all my social media posts have to kind of flow in that line. Now I want it to be authentic. And so if you look at my social media, specifically my Instagram, it's typically me working out as I'm coming back from ACL and kind of showing my progress. So it's very authentic to my life that I live every day, you know, multiple workouts uh, at different times. And, and maybe, you know, you might see a smoothie or something like that because I try to eat healthy, things of that nature. But, you know, I, I can't necessarily, uh, you know, it, it just would be remiss of me to post like alcohol in, in large quantities or something like that. Um, and. I mean, I like wine, but I don't drink, obviously, hard liquor, large quantities and things like that. But I, I just couldn't do that and still expect to maintain the type of conducive image that that represents kind of the shield well um, at, at the same time. So each person and that's the beauty of social media. It's, it's such an individual experience that you kind of have to attack it in the manner that's best for your life. Yeah. And I think on that point, too, like, you know, just to chime in, too, we've uniquely identified that in terms of like our broader vision for the Galaxy platform and that, you know, each creator, like they, like Sensor mentioned, and like, you know, we spoke about a few times now is that, you know, they all have different revenue streams. So like, you know, things like, you know, paving way to a future where you can you know offer securitization as a potential, you know, liquidity event for, you know, an NBA player or an NFL player, et cetera, like having the rails set to be able to do something like that might make sense. And then, you know, obviously, you know, when you think about what's much larger is that, you know, the creator economy, right? Like, you know, like going back to my example before, you know, the need for monetization is, you know, quite great in that step, you know, in that creator middle class, like, right? Like, you know, to Spencer's point, you know, he's just talking about signing, you know, lucrative NBA contracts, but there are people, you know, that got a million followers that, you know, really need to, you know, monetize because that's their livelihood. Right. Like, you know, Spencer makes money playing basketball, but like, you know, some of these people don't necessarily make money having, you know, a ton of followers on Instagram. And so their price, um, you know, per you know unit of effort or, or you know, however you want to think about it is probably lower. Right. And that's the beauty of our app. And, you know, setting your price, you know, you're able to really take ownership and, auton- and like have autonomy over what your time is worth. Right. Um, and that's something that's, you know, really important and necessary when you think about how, you know, traditional legacy social media platforms exist where you have, you know, TikToks or YouTubes or bigger, you know, larger organizations are deciding how much these people are worth based off of the follower count and traffic that they bring. Um, you know, the whole idea of centralization and DeFi, and I'm sure we'll get into a lot of that, you know, later on in the conversation. But, you know, the idea of being able to have that autonomy and be able to monetize your time as you see fit is, you know, really the key. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. I think this is super helpful for me and Tracy as we think about sort of balancing social media against our $60 million contracts. (laughs) Something that I'm really interested in is like, I'm curious because, you know, like Tracy and I, I, you know, I'm 40. I don't know how old Tracy is, but, you know, it's like we didn't grow up with all this stuff. Things like tokens and buying cryptocurrencies like related to a star, it's like still like very like awkward for me. What is your experience with like the sort of like current generation of 
fans and just their level of comfort with, say, like the idea of like buying a star token or a creator token in some way and and understanding, interacting with that. I yeah. know you guys are part of the older generation, but I don't think it's actually that, um, <laughs> you know, unfamiliar for you guys. You guys traded basketball cards, baseball cards, um, things like that, which is, you know, akin to Top Shot. Yeah, right. OE Bonds came out, you know, a long, long time ago. Um, and, and that's something that obviously my tokenization is. Uh, similar to, I think people throw around the word crypto, they throw around the word token and people get a little bit yeah. gun shy because they feel like, oh no, it's a whole new world. Now, to a certain extent it is, right? But we're talking about units that can be more effectively moved, right? What does the blockchain really do? It gives us a, a trustless trust layer, right? Like I don't have to trust you, Joe. You know what I mean? Like I can just simply trust the ledger. I can trust the Ethereum blockchain or the Hedera Hashgraph blockchain itself. I, I take out the the you know counterparty risk in that sense right because the ledger is is the baseline and, and i and something that i know to be true right because it's been it's had verified transactions for however many number of years etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's more so utilizing the the trust layer uh the speed right to to handle these kind of escrow system transactions these smart contracts so i don't look at it from a standpoint of you know necessarily uh, reinventing the wheel. And that's why I said I was trying to apply the, the technology to the entertainment industry um, in ways that I thought it solved issues and solved problems, right? Like Bowie Bonds was something that, that was effective, but a little bit outdated, right? We look at kind of, even the owners have talked about, they want liquidity in teams. They want 51% financial obligation, but they want 100% control. Well, how are you going to get that? It has to be from the fans. No other billionaire is going to say, hey, I give you my money, but I don't want a board seat. I don't want executive decision making. I don't want to look into the financials. I don't want to. That's not going to happen. Right. Like, but fans will buy in because of their emotional tie to the experience. It's the same type of thing with contracts and other illiquid assets, such as intellectual property or time, for example, you know, things that are hard to extract value from. We want to kind of put it on this blockchain. Right. So you take out the, the, the fear of not trusting this person and then you, you, you set the playing field level and you say, hey, if you want to interact or you want to buy a piece of a team or you want to buy a piece of a contract or whatever it is. And we understand some of these things are. Uh, securities and some are non-security. So I'm not saying Galaxy handles all this, right? But just in terms of blockchain as application, that's the way we viewed it and the way we kind of go about um, uh, applying the technology and scaling uh, Galaxy into the future. And, and obviously, um, any of these ideas that Galaxy doesn't do, if somebody's listening to the podcast, take it, run with it, and I hope you make you know billions of dollars with it. <laughs> um, so I, so I want to press you on this point and I'm going to start with a kind of weird anecdote, but seven or eight years ago, I was living in New York and I was going to, um, a gym. I think it was like a New York sports club gym or something like that. And there was a manager there who had an idea, which was basically to start something very similar to like Patreon or Cameo now and to have fans pay in order to get specialized content from their favorite athletes, their favorite stars. And this was seven or eight years ago. He told me that idea and I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And he was sort of asking for media and legal and financial advice and stuff like that. I have no idea if he ever got it off the ground, but clearly he was directionally right because we have all these platforms now. I guess my question is, what differentiates Galaxy from the other things that are out there? And you've given you've given the the sort of um, the case for crypto here, but there are other platforms doing this that do not use the technology and seem to be achieving the same thing. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take the first piece in terms of broad vision, and then I'll defecate to Solo for the comprehensiveness of Galaxy. You know, on that note, when you talk about uh, looking into the future and him seven, eight years ago, talking about the cameos and, and things of that nature, it still came down to decreasing friction, right? Because people want to be tied to what's innately special. I, I use this analogy a lot when, when discussing this kind of broader topic. If you took the Brooklyn Nets logo and you dropped it in the middle of, you know, Times Square or wherever, um, people would probably stop. People would take pictures. Um, it would be somewhat of an event. It would kind of be a little, you know, like, oh, what's going on here? But it wouldn't uh, stop traffic, right? If LeBron James right now tweeted out, hey, I'll be at Times Square at, you know, 12 p.m. tomorrow, everybody is showing up to Times Square. COVID or not, 
it doesn't matter. Like they're showing up, <laughs> they're going to be there. Whether they have to take their picture from, you know, 10 yards away or they actually get to meet them and have a conversation, whatever it is, everybody's showing up. And so it speaks to what's actually special, right? A long time ago, people thought of this more in the, uh, you know, college way, right? Where there's all this, uh, you know, school pride and program tradition. And they thought it kind of applied to the, to the professional realm, but it doesn't. You know, there's a, there's a reason why McDonald's goes to a LeBron or a Katie or whatever and asks them to endorse their food. You know what I mean? Because people want, you know, that, that, that access to that person. Like the golden arches are nice, but I'd much rather talk to Katie. You know what I mean? So, you know, that's where it's going. It's not going to stop. And so, you know, on that note, obviously I'll shift it to, to solo on why Calaxy helps that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to, to piggyback off that and too, and like, you know, I think in general, the answer has a lot to do with the idea of just customizability for each person's, you know, intended audience. Right. So like, if you think about cameo, right. Like, you know, I love Spencer to death, but like, you know, he may not be the type of person that makes a killing off that platform, right. Based off of who he is, or even better, you know, Patreon. Right. He's not a content producer. He's not going to have in, you know, in, you know, in exclusives, you know, documentary series or docuseries like some athletes do. But like for him personally, that's not how he spends his free time. Right. Like so in order to monetize that or like the reward of, you know, being on a platform like that, that becomes a lot of work. Right. Like when you were saying, you know, at the beginning, you know, you want to minimize the friction. Right. Like we keep coming to the same idea. Right. You know, take that example and apply it to you know, an Instagram model or to apply it to a, you know, a YouTuber, right? Like there are people who are on YouTube who are not famous, but they're famous to somebody, right? And so like, when you think about that idea, right, there definitely is a need for a platform that can meet the needs of them. And they all exist in some way, shape or form. There are a lot of unique intricacies of App Galaxy that don't, you know, you can't really find elsewhere, but like the idea of doing a video message, right? Like are doing, you know, calls or, you know, exclusive content that does exist as to your point. Um, but, you know, in order to, you know, monetize your fan base in a holistic manner, you have to be on all these different things and they might not even fit or suit you, right? You know, depending on, you know, who you are as a person, if you're a YouTuber and you got 75,000 followers, like I'm sure of those $75,000, there's a thousand people who think you're the greatest person in the world. But like, are you going to make a killing on Cameo? Probably not when The Rock is offering the same thing, right? And so like, I think when you think about like our platform, you create this sort of ecosystem, not to mention, you know, the idea of the added benefit of integration of blockchain technology. And you think about NFTs and you think about the idea of ultimately tokenizing a person and having them listed on an exchange one day, like that future and that architecture is so innately important in like our DNA. Can you just talk briefly about your technology choice? What, uh, platforms, blockchains did you use and what is the uh what was the thinking behind it? Yeah, no. So when when building this platform and, and understanding that to kind of future proof it in a sense, that's why we use blockchain. I mean you spoke about the cameos, yeah. uh, you know, OnlyFans, Patreons, etc. They don't. But you know, we we view a you know an ecosystem and environment where um not only are you showcasing NFTs, but also you're gonna have kind of fluidity of these these tokens in terms of a secondary market structure. You know, and, and, and to do that efficiently and effectively, um, blockchain was was going to be something that would, would greatly help us. So with that being said, you know, we started targeting layer ones and, and looking at which ones had the, the most robust infrastructure to support that. You know, obviously, Ethereum comes up first because it's, it's by far the, the biggest smart contract uh, layer one. Uh, Bitcoin doesn't do smart contracts, obviously. But we, we knew that CryptoKitties had once kind of throttled the network and, and fees were very high. Right. So, you know, that wasn't going to be appealing because if we were uh, bringing on people such as myself or Ezekiel Elliott or, you know, we just got a TikToker, uh, you know, excuse me, I don't know if TikToker is the right nomenclature, but somebody that <laughs> is famous on TikTok has about 8 million followers on TikTok. Uh, you know, today we just signed him up too. Uh, if, if we bring all those followers, right, uh, we didn't want to throttle the the, the, the app nor the Ethereum network, we didn't want fees to skyrocket and become unusable. So, you know, we, we figured that probably wasn't going to work in its current state. So looking at other layer ones, uh, whether it be Tezos, uh, Algorand, um, just just several. Uh, Flow wasn't quite out of, uh, you know, it's beta yet. So we, we didn't choose them, although I'm an investor there. Uh, and we sat on Hedera Hashgraph. The reason for that. If you look at the Hedera Hashgraph, they have, you know, a, a council with Fortune 500 companies that we had to pitch to get a grant. So, you know, there's, there's incredible reputation hmm. risk management to be aligned with, you know, people like Google and, and LG and IBM and DLA Piper and Deutsche Telekom. 
uh, to name a few. Uh, on top of that, they're they're kind of considered next generation blockchain. They they technically aren't blockchain specifically. They actually are hash graph technology, literally. Um, they're the only one that that comes to uh, you know complete finality, asynchronous, Byzantine fault tolerant. Um, so it's the highest level of security. That it was uh, uh, created by uh, a guy that used to be a part of the Department of Defense. You know, you look at the other projects, they, they their network is just outrageously robust. And so, you know, when, when choosing a, a layer one, like why not align yourself with some of the top companies in the world? Like, you know, it's it's a it's an honor to for when Hedera Hashgraph puts out, you know, their partners list to see Google, IBM, Coxie. You know what I mean? Like it's pretty killer. And, and, and granted, our balance sheet doesn't necessarily look like theirs as of now, but to be in that same breath at this early stage you know, is is both humbling and extremely inspiring. So, you know, for the, to get their stamp of approval and all that stuff, uh, it seemed like a no-brainer for us. So I know you're still in beta, but what have you learned from applying blockchain technology so far? Because one of the criticisms of blockchain is this idea that it's sort of a solution in need of a problem and that real world applications actually either, you know, don't exist or there aren't that many of them. So I'm just curious, like, as you roll this out, what have you discovered about the benefits or drawbacks of blockchain? Yeah, I mean, I think from my side of things, what you know, what we what we discovered, I guess, like from our side of things, is that you know there are you know there is a big need and a, and, and a big want actually to to understand this technology, right? Like we're not the only ones, and you know, Spencer being you know one of the you know trailblazers in the entertainment industry to really be one of the early adopters of it, like you know, a lot of people followed suit, right? You know, we, uh, you know, we we're actually, you know, really close with Matt James, the, you know, most recent bachelor. And, you know, he, uh, you know, is very much so involved in, you know, learning more about the technology himself. And so like in this process of onboarding different creators and things like that, you know, the blockchain thing wasn't something they shied away from. Quite honestly, it was something that they leaned into um, because they saw the future and they saw a lot of the benefits. And, you know, I think one thing that we wanted to be absolutely deliberate on and, you know, very clear, um, you know, on was creating a product that was palatable, something that made sense and something that wasn't going to confuse, you know, the average person, you know, in middle America. All right. Like when it comes to creating something that, um, you know, is highly functioning, um, but at the same time, you know, something that's like easy to use when you think about like kind of Apple and like creating a project, you know, a product that's, you know, supremely capable, but at the same time, you don't know how it works. It just works. Right. Um, and so when we think about, you know, our product and stuff, you know, we found that, you know, a lot of people have been really excited, um, you know, not only for solving the real world issue about there needs to be some sort of one ecosystem to develop, you know, a fan base or a community, um, but then also, you know, creating the opportunity and the wingo path to be able to kind of help educate and, you know, teach um, and bring crypto, you know, very similarly to the, you know, to our part, you know, to, uh, you know, to the flow project. And, you know, Roham is, uh, you know, an advisor to our project, the CEO of Dapper Labs, um, you know, in their whole ethos about kind of bringing crypto to the masses through games. You know, very similarly, we're trying to do, you know, a very similar thing here um, with creator economies and social media. And so, um, you know, from our side of things, it's, you know, we've learned a lot, um, you know, and we've been able to iterate and continue to grow and build a product that's you know, truly and organically felt like it's been built by the creators, you know, Spencer and influencer himself, he goes in Brooklyn Nets, like behind this, we had a lot of, you know, great information that a couple of dudes in Silicon Valley with a similar idea may not have had just by the fact that like, you know, our network, our friends and family, like the creators that we've onboarded so far, our personal relationships and, um, you know, it's starting to get a lot of inbounds, obviously, but, you know, kind of the initial cohort that we started with, um, you know, helped us, you know, realize those beginning points. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. 
That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the last year has obviously been incredible for all things crypto. Obviously, the big coins had an incredible year and uh, Top Shot became a phenomenon. Uh, Spencer, you know, we were talking about the beginning. You're you're very early on all that stuff. I'm curious, like what you've seen, like in the locker room and so forth as other players have like, do they turn to you to like help uh, help them like understand and navigate all this, uh, navigate all this stuff? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I think, um, for me personally, I, I'm not gonna lie. It's, it's, it's much better being asked questions than being laughed at. Cause in 2017, I was definitely <laughs> laughed at in 2018 for sure. Laughed at 2019 for sure, for sure. Laughed at, but no, in, in all seriousness, I think, um, you know, overall, since I've been in the league, I think, um, people have spoken about the shift that's happened since I would say probably 2010 and now we got it in 14, but the, of the education process of the athlete as a whole, I think guys are much more involved in their finances. I think we have a lot of brilliant guys um, um, that are that are looking to form generational wealth, whether in, in whatever avenue that is, whether it's real estate, traditional, you know, stocks and equities and things, or now in emerging technologies. And I know VC was kind of the wave uh, right before blockchain um, really kind of uh, took over. Um, so it's been fun to get asked those questions. Um, I actually shy away from from offering explicit advice i mean i i discuss my partners all the time that's smart yeah no i discuss my partners all the time i just say (laughs) as financial journalists this is one area that maybe we could actually genuinely relate tracy and i have a lot of experience of being asked i financial questions from friends and family to which by anything to which we have absolutely no good advice we're just like you know buy an index fund or something like that I, i tell them i tell them you know i personally am investing in bitcoin i tell them that my my platform is built on Hashgraph. Two of my main partners are are Flow and and Chainlink. And other than that, I would encourage you to do as much research as you possibly can. That's the biggest start I can give you, and and that's just from a transparent place and something that you could read online. So obviously, I'm going to be invested with my partners, and and saying I'm going to support Bitcoin is no no secret at all. So you know that's what I'll give you. Um, if you want to talk about the big picture and where I think distributed technology, distributed ledger technology can kind of take markets in a comprehensive fashion. I definitely love to do that. And, and I can talk your off all day, but, but explicit investment advice, uh, I, I definitely shy away from because I don't want to be the guy that says, you know, do this and you know, you lose some money and, and now you're mad at me. Yeah, that's good advice. But that, that, that's, <laughs> that's exactly what I think. Anytime someone asks me a question, I just don't want to cost anyone their money. No, and then you're not welcome back for Thanksgiving dinner. Exactly. And, like and I love yeah. Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, there was something I wanted to ask you that Joe and I sort of alluded to in the intro. And it was I this idea of, I guess, the moral dimensions of selling some sort of financial interest that is tied to people. Um, obviously, when you say a sentence like that, it tends to make people squeamish. And I remember after the 2008 financial crisis, when there was so much criticism of the process of securitization in itself, every once in a while, there would be like an idea that would pop up about securitizing people's future income streams. Like maybe you sell a student's future income and they use that money to actually go to college or something like that. But every time the idea came up, people would sort of instinctively feel uncomfortable with it. It feels like things are changing a little bit. People, you know, this I, I guess our familiarity with content creation now maybe has sort of changed that equation. But I, I'm just curious how you're thinking about the moral dimension of all of this. Yeah. I mean on that note, I, I think um you you touched on something that's good. Uh content creation is much more prevalent. But but the two factors that I think make this an actual functioning ecosystem. And this really has nothing to do with technology, but it's the reason why like mm-hmm. it's going to be easier for me to secure something versus like a, a college student. You need somebody that has, you know, semi-public to public cash flows so that it's not a situation where they can really hide and divert money and try to screw their investors because, you know, in more normal situations, that wouldn't be too difficult to try to try to do. But if, you know, obviously I'm in the NBA and, and 
my contract is public and I can't. And then other than that, I would say you have to have the incentives be aligned. You know, it can't be a situation where I sell my entire contract and then if I play really bad, you know, nothing matters. And so I can fake an injury and just sit down or whatever it is and, you know, and just put not only myself, but investors in kind of a, you know, less advantageous position. It, it, it has to be a situation where, um, you know, the incentives are aligned. You make it so that there's hopefully some some promising returns for the investors, of course, but also, you know, uh, it encourages the athlete to, to continue to uh, play well and win games and do right and, and, and all that stuff. So. Yeah, I mean, I think from my side of things, too, like as a, you know, a securitization banker in a, in a previous life, um, you know, I think when you think about kind of the you know recession of 2008 versus kind of now, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of different points, you know, places that you could point to, uh, you know, where you think that there are inequities in terms of the education level that, you know, people might have investing in these sorts of things. And, you know, obviously, this is something that, you know, we've touched upon, you know, immediately in day one. Is this something that Galaxy's really looking to, you know, commercialize as a business? Not exactly. Um, you know, it's definitely a part of our bigger macro picture that Sensor, you know, has put together in, in, in his thoughts and stuff. But when you think about, um, you know, just general education, right? Like the barriers to entry to trading are, couldn't be lower, right? Like people are getting, you know, five, $10 to open up brokerage accounts and start trading on different platforms. And, you know, there are a lot of people when you think about like GameStop and, you know, AMC and different things that you saw this year. And, you know, the idea of, you know, people wanting to take on their own personal finances, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it wasn't the case that the average Joe was trading. Um, but, you know, that's not the case now and that's distinctly different. And so, you know, to your point, you know, talking about, you know, securitization and how it's had this stigma around it. Um, you know, there are a lot of different areas within the financial industry that, you know, obviously require a little bit more you know, education around the ways in which that you can use this, you know, access for, you know, quite great, you know, wealth creation and building over time. But, um, you know, when you think about the idea of you know, securitizing a person, you know, that ultimately, you know, is the, is, is the way in which that you think about the future, right? Like if you're, you know, LeBron James or you're somebody with a very, you know, large empire, there should be different means and alternatives for financing outside of just, you know, going to a bank for a traditional loan, especially, you know, as Spencer mentioned, if you have public, you know, cash flows, because, you know, outside of that, there are people, you know, taking out, I can't remember, you know, it might've been a year ago, might've been a couple years ago that Spencer and I had this conversation, but there are, you know, people that take out egregious loans to be able to, you know, cash advance their lives, right? Like they'll take out loans at, you know, crazy, you know, 15, 18, 20%, you know, when there could be a lot more, you know, efficient ways to, to, to finance your life, especially if you, uh, you know, have the, uh, you know, the validity behind it. Spencer, you mind if I just ask you a few general, not specific blockchain related questions, like real quickly, a little quick, like lightning round of other questions? Yeah, let's do it. I'm with you. How would you summarize why it feels like NBA has just done like such a better job? So many people I know are so into the NBA. They like talking about the NBA. They like talk about the players of the NBA, like yourself, in a way that I don't see with other leagues. Like, what do you think it is that's like the NBA has really like figured out something culturally? I think uh, the NBA has embraced emerging technologies. Um, and, and this is a complete non-blockchain type thing. I'm talking about like streaming. Um, YouTube yeah. highlights make them easily accessible. I think, um, you know, they, they didn't put, uh, they didn't try to block like the copyrights usage. So you see all these uh, comedian things hopping on, you know, highlights and, and distributing this content and repurposing this content. And so you attract new fans, right? Especially in, uh, you know, foreign countries when it's, it's hard to watch the games live. Um, I think another component of basketball that, that makes us very attractive to uh, fans, you can see our face. We, we seem like human beings. Um, this is uh, no shot to football or anything like that, but obviously they have to wear helmets for protective right, reasons. Right. But you know, you don't necessarily know the person behind the mask unless he's a quarterback. Like quarterbacks take off their helmets all the time, so you know him. But other than that, I couldn't tell you a D lineman if you walk down the street, other than the fact that he's probably you know outrageously you know muscular, right? Uh, right. Basketball players are recognizable not just in term, not just uh, from the standpoint of seeing our face, but also obviously stature. You see a six eight person walking down the street. And his face looks familiar. You'll probably think he's a, you know, a Brooklyn net player. So, so just <laughs> right. things of that nature allow a lot of NBA to scale, just familiarity in fans' minds, um, allowing players to be more vocal about, you know, issues, whether it be, uh, you know, social or economics or, you know, wh whatever it is. So, so that kind of broad ranging where you have outspoken people, you see their face and they're recognizable. 
um, allowing your content to be repurposed and, and, and used for fun, for business, for whatever it is. It, it just creates a, a, a kind of wildfire type of uh, distribution. So what do you do? You mentioned if someone sees you walk around Brooklyn, they probably might guess you're a basketball player. What's your what's your off court life in Brooklyn like? What do you like to do? Um, I mean, before I started playing, well, I mean, I would just kind of I mean, I wear sweats, hoodie, you know, stuff like that every day. So I'm a very chill person. I wear vans every day Um, before I started playing. Well, you know, people might like catch a glance. And then if I make eye contact, they're like, are you I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you are. And you kind of keep walking and stuff like that. Now, obviously, having having played better, things like that, you know, I'm, I'm more immediately recognizable. But, you know, in, in that respect, I, I take it in, in stride and I actually enjoy it just from the standpoint of I understand what it's like to be on the other side of that. And I understand the fans create this ecosystem. I think that's one of the biggest benefits of building a, a app and going through the tokenization and exploring the entertainment industry and learning how the NBA was built and you know, on a nonprofit system and all, just a bunch of different things you understand at the end of the day, fans make this thing work. If fans spend their money, we all have jobs. If they don't, then we don't. You know what I'm saying? It is that cut and dry. It is that simple. Like from an economics perspective, no billionaires buying an NBA team if it wasn't a revenue generating entity. At the end of the day, that's just what it is. Whether, whether the stock goes up or you actually are cash flow positive, one of them has to happen for, an, for a billionaire to want to you know, dive into this business. And so, you know, I, I try to be as uh, uh, cordial, as inviting and as appreciative to the fans because they allow me to live the life that, that I live, you know, and, and as long as they approach me with uh, common courtesy and respect, you know, then, then why would I approach them like they're any less of that same human being? We're all humans. Great, great answer. Final final question. We're uh, recording this June 7th. As you mentioned, your team, uh, the Nets, are playing the Bucks tonight in the playoffs. You're uh, injured right now, so you're not participating. What is that like, sort of like, as you like watch those games from the sideline? I mean, I'm sure it's like brutal not being on the court and supporting your team, but how do you, how do you deal with that? It's tough. I, I've had, you know, two main injuries in my life. Uh, one was ACL on my left knee, one was ACL on my right knee. You know, when, when, you, when you're on the sideline, it's kind of an introspective uh, experience, I would say. It was weird watching this season just from the standpoint of you saw the bubble. Then you saw this season where we played in arenas with no fans. But I'll tell you what, with, with these fans back, with the energy in, the, in this playoff atmosphere, uh, you know, the itch to play has gone to, you know, through the roof. It's, it's, it's at 10 times what it was during the, the regular season, just keeping up with the guys. Now it's, now it's at a level that's like, I mean, I, I need to get back out there. It's, it's a need at this point. I just don't want. So, you know, I, I miss it and, and I can't wait to, to play soon. All right. Well, that was that was fantastic. Uh, Spencer Solo, thank you both so much for taking the time. Fascinating project and uh, appreciate you coming on Oddlot. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Tracy, that was a really fun episode. I feel like that's actually like a whole different dimension of the um, crypto conversation that I think is actually really important and kind of totally unexplored, to- totally something we've underexplored. I guess the thing that stood out to me was just how much um, the fields of sports have sort of changed and this idea that athletes yeah. need to be content producers or if they can be content producers, then they have a, potentially another stream that they can monetize. I guess I guess to some extent that was always the case in professional sports. People would always have some sort of sponsor, sponsorship deal on the side, but it just feels like we're in a whole new at a whole new level in, in many respects. Yeah, I guess what I mean by like, uh, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. The way to contextualize that is probably more within the realm of new ways that celebrities and athletes are monetizing their fame than crypto. I guess like what I was thinking is like when I think about like crypto, I think about like these hardcore sort of like distributed tech systems that are designed to be censorship resistant and designed to be, you know, sort of like powerful computer science ideas. But the idea that like another application is it's just fun to like buy a token that's sort of related to um, a a, uh, a, a, a celebrity you like 
is actually like a pretty huge use case for all this stuff that probably doesn't get talked about enough uh, in that context. Yeah. And actually, people like to talk about tokenization. Well, we just did this. People talk about tokenization as this brand new thing all the time. But actually, like, I don't know, I guess baseball cards were the original tokens or maybe at least ADRs were the original tokens for stocks. Yeah. Like there are examples of tokens out there that have been successfully deployed and they weren't like an earth shattering financial system threatening yeah. thing. It is funny, like, I guess because I'm like, you know, old and like it's hard for me to like wrap my <laughs> head around like NFTs. But like, what is the difference really between an NFT and like a basketball card? Like, it's really not that different. Like, it's like when I was young, like I could understand basketball cards or baseball cards, but it's just a piece of cardboard. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I liked about that conversation, though, was actually the discussion of applying the technology to a specific use case, because I feel like we don't hear enough about that. So this idea that, you know, they couldn't do Bitcoin for obvious reasons. They looked at Ethereum, but they were worried about the costs and yeah. the system getting clogged up. And so they settled on an alternate technology. I think it speaks to probably that point that you made in your gigantic 5,000 word post about this idea that you can't look at crypto as a monolith because different technologies, yeah. different cryptocurrencies slash tokens have different use cases. Yeah, it is interesting too. Like uh, I remember the CryptoKitties phenomenon in 2017 <laughs> and that just like brought the entire network to yeah. a halt. And so you do see like this use is like, well, let's just use a different chain that's maybe more optimized for some other use case. So I don't know, it'd be fascinating uh, to see where it goes. And I feel like Spencer seems to have a particularly like really good uh, intuition about where this is all going. And he's sort of demonstrated that over the last several years. Well, he's definitely perfectly placed for that sort yeah, of totally. confluence of... Um... I like that on that one point, we have something in common with him, which is we do not want to give financial advice to our friends and family. <laughs> Yes, I think that's the only thing we have in common, probably. All right. Um, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guests on Twitter, Spencer Dinwiddie. He's at SDinwiddie underscore 25. As well as Solo Cisse. He's at Solo Cisse. And follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.